Uh, just a few moments ago, I felt my phone vibrate and uh, took a look, and there's a, a news channel that I've been following on a service called Viber, which is very popular in Eastern Europe, and it has been tracking the events in Ukraine. And a message came in, and it said, Happy Easter. Easter is a reminder that God sent his son into a very broken world, a world that was full of evil and selfishness and murderous thoughts and selfish thoughts and, and all the things that make cultures fall apart. God, in great love, sent his son to face the evil that this world can dish out and to take it on himself and to die in our place. But the message of Easter is that war is not the final end, that brokenness is not God's final plan, that God has come to reconcile us to himself, and that Easter is a proclamation that he is the victor. One of the things I love about the Easter story, one of the things that has always spoken to me of its historical reality is the fact that some of the first witnesses to Easter were women. Now, you may think, what's the big deal with that? But, but in that day, women were a very undervalued, often oppressed group of people. And if you're going to just create a story and try and make it credible, well, you'd write the story so that it was some really distinguished man who found out and announced it. And yet, every gospel writer is consistent in saying that it was women that Jesus first showed himself to that went and told his male disciples what was going on, that he is risen. And it's because they were the ones who actually saw God chose to reveal himself to them first and let them be the ones to announce the news because it really happened. He really is risen. Now, if you've been with us last Sunday, you'll know that we started following the story of one particular woman, Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and we read this verse out of Luke chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. And of course, we think about all the things that Mary had treasured and pondered in her life. Uh, with Rebecca Small's help, we, we've caught some powerful glimpses of some of those treasures that Mary pondered. From uh, the unexpected angelic announcement that you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, to the visit of wide-eyed shepherds the night of his birth, to witnessing the miracle at that wedding, his first miracle of changing water to wine, and then watching as the crowds began to swell and, and follow after and listen to her miracle boy. Last Sunday, we stood with Mary and we rejoiced to see how the crowds welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as he came for the Passover. And as it seemed that everything good was coming to a climax, and then Friday night, Rebecca took us on a very different journey as we saw the crowds turn. And we saw the one that only days before had been hailed as a king suddenly rejected and stripped and beaten and spit on and cursed. And she watched her son die the most horrible of deaths. But the story doesn't end there. And this morning, Rebecca is going to come again and let us share with Mary the discovery of the treasure that she must have valued above all others, that most unexpected treasure, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. of that memorable week so long ago but still so fresh in my mind changed everything not just for me as Yeshua's mother but for all of us who believed in him 
in fact, for the world. The day Yeshua was crucified, I remember wondering, why on this day of all days? Passover has always been my favorite holiday, but now I no longer think of the escape from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. I see my son hanging between heaven and earth to bear the punishment to reconcile us back to God. I had knelt that day at the foot of the cross, sobbing and broken over my own sin that had held him there. John, one of Yeshua's closest disciples and friends, was by my side when Yeshua had shouted out for all to hear, It is finished! That dreadful, heart-wrenching moment was the exact hour the Passover lambs were being slain on the Temple Mount. In that moment, I understood that the lambs slain in Egypt as substitutes to save the firstborn sons from death and to rescue Israel was a prophetic illustration. That first historic Passover foreshadowed a far greater deliverance God would accomplish through his own firstborn son. That same day, many centuries later, Yeshua paid the full price for our sin debt as our substitute. It is finished. The more I have pondered those words, the more I realize that those words changed all of history. They reverberate even to your day and will throughout all eternity. That day, we watched. And John was holding me close and I clung to him. I and a few of the other women saw the men take down the cross and extract the nails. I looked at my broke the broken body of my firstborn and saw the many stripes from the lash of the whip. I thought of Yeshua holding up the striped and pierced matzah the night of our Passover dinner and breaking it as he handed it to us and said, this is my body broken for you. Yusuf of Arimathea and Nicodemus began to wrap his body in the long strip of linen they'd brought, just like I had done when he was born. Seeing the linen, his, seeing his blood stain the white linen. In my mind, I could see Yeshua hold up the cup of redemption and say, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Even that night, we had not understood, but now I began to realize that Yeshua had known all along. Simeon, the elderly man who had come up to us when Yeshua was only 40 days old, when we came to the temple, had looked directly at me and spoken words that at last came into sharp focus. Through him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Yes, and a sword shall pierce your own soul too. Indeed. I'd never felt such pain before. Simeon had known and understood. And as I looked at my son's bloodied corpse, the terrible truth drove Simeon's prophetic sword deep into my soul. We followed numb and silent as the men buried him in a tomb nearby already prepared by Yusuf from Arimathea to be his own tomb. Instead, he donated it to Yeshua, openly expressing his faith at last. We ducked into that dark cave, dimly lit with the fading twilight, 
and watched as the men carrying his body laid it on the stone ledge, roughly chiseled out for that very purpose. Fresh tears stung my eyes. The parallels were extraordinary. The dark stone cave dimly lit, the linen swaddling cloth, and the baby laid in a rough-hewn stone manger. The beginning and the end, both alike. Neither his birth nor his death were in the time or manner I would have chosen, but God was orchestrating things beyond our control to tell an overarching story connected from beginning to end that would endure throughout the rest of time. John led me away back to his own home. How fully he embraced his Lord's dying command to care for me as his own mother. That evening I sat stuck. I couldn't get that horrible scene out of my mind. Always the shadow of his cross loomed before my eyes. Later that night, John came in carrying a candle, seeing that flame. My eyes filled with tears again. Everything reminded me of Yeshua. When John left the room with the candle, I stared at that flickering flame until he blew it out. I sat looking at nothing into the great void, the darkness that was not supposed to be able to overcome the light, the light of the world. That's who Yeshua claimed to be, but it was extinguished. How? How do we go on from here? I didn't know. The next two days dragged by. I pondered many things. About mid-morning, John came in to check on me. I had so many unanswered questions. He sat beside me, his eyes dull with pain and disillusionment. John, that day when Yeshua rode into Jerusalem in triumph, I stifled a sob. How had it all gone so wrong? What had he meant when he said, if only you had known the day of your visitation? John told me he had heard one of the scribes say that day in disgust of all the days. Yes, the scribes who knew the scriptures better than anyone had calculated the timing prophesied by Daniel when he wrote from the decree of Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the Prince. There would be 69 weeks or 69 seven-year cycles of Shemitah or Sabbath years. God had given us the exact number of days when the Messiah would come. The very day Yeshua rode into Jerusalem, presenting himself as Israel's king and prince of peace, was the final day of those 69 seven-year cycles. Oh, John! And they rejected him? But John reminded me that Daniel's prophecy went on to say that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. No, he was cut off for us. I knew that now. One after another, different prophecies flooded my mind. Prophecies Yeshua had specifically fulfilled from his conception in my womb when I was yet a virgin, to his miraculous ministry, to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and all the details of his death on a cross. So many prophecies 
very specifically and precisely written many centuries before. The number of fulfilled prophecies were so copious, so obvious. They pointed definitively to my son, Yeshua. I remember the time when Yeshua had opened the eyes of a blind man. That itself had been one of the prophetic messianic signs. However, our religious leaders still had refused to believe in him. Yeshua addressed their unbelief, saying, Whoever enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He told them they were blind to not see that he had entered by the door, the door of prophecy. It was written all over our Jewish scriptures. Yet they refused to believe because the ramifications for themselves were too severe. Our own leaders who taught us these scriptures that were to help open our eyes to the coming of the Messiah had mocked him in scorn and unbelief. One of the criminals who was crucified with him took up their taunts and rasped out, If you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. But saving himself would have damned us forever. This he would not do. The other criminal made the excruciating effort to push himself up just long enough to throw back a rebuke. Don't you fear God? We deserve what we've got, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then addressing my son, he pleaded, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Such faith in his dying hours. This condemned man, amid all the derision and rejection, recognized who Yeshua really was, the true king who had a kingdom in another realm. Yeshua assured the dying wretch, today you shall be with me in paradise. Those hope-filled words brought back to my mind with new clarity something he had said the previous evening at our Passover dinner. I am going to prepare a place for you. He was going to the cross that we might go to paradise. My thoughts took me to the memory of another scene. Going over to this small wooden chest I, where I kept my most precious belongings and memories, I unearthed a package I had long treasured and pondered over, the Magi's gift of myrrh. Yeshua had been sitting on my lap with the three majestic figures so richly clad, kneeling before him and presenting their gifts. I recalled my mystified consternation when this gift had been handed to me. Myrrh was a spice used only in the linens when preparing a dead body for burial. Why had this gift been given? Finally, I understood the meaning and purpose of the last of the Magi's gifts, our sacrifice. The high king from heaven, creator of all, came to earth to offer himself to God as the only sufficient sacrifice for all. The Magi had known and understood. I unwrapped this bundle of myrrh. After Sabbath, I would go with the other women and anoint the body of Yeshua. That afternoon, I went out to where John was sitting, staring vacantly. John, what are you thinking? I asked quietly. His face was so full of 
remorse as he relived what happened in the olive grove before the detachment of officers had arrived. Yeshua had asked his three closest disciples to watch with him and pray. We fell asleep, John moaned. Would it all have been prevented if we had stayed awake and prayed? In their struggle to stay awake, they had seen Yeshua fall to the ground in agony of soul and heard only a few of his broken words. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. They hadn't known what he meant. But then he had prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours, I murmured. So going to the cross was in obedience to his father. I marveled at this. I myself now knew the anguish of a parent's heart. And I began in some small way to comprehend the Father's love for us. It was the Father who asked His Son to go through the pain of the cross and the agony of bearing our sins. God the Father withheld His hand from delivering His own Son that He might rescue us and reconcile us back to Himself. No, John, it would not have been prevented. I asked John to tell me about the trials. He was reluctant for both of our sakes, but I needed to hear it. There had been four that day, two in the early morning, in the middle of the night before our religious leaders and two in the early morning before our political leaders. Pilate had ruefully asked the one question that summed them all up. What is truth? Three times he had declared Yeshua's innocence, but they didn't want the truth. They only shouted the louder, crucify him, crucify him. In an attempt to maintain a false peace, Pilate gave the order to murder the Prince of Peace. Truth was spit on and dragged through the streets and nailed to a cross. I sat pondering all that John had told me. John, I gently reminded him, God was using Pilate to prove that Yeshua was worthy to be God's Passover lamb by declaring that he was blameless even three times over as if God were giving our rulers the threefold witness the law requires. John lifted his head, light beginning to dawn in his eyes as the disconnected bits and pieces of truth began to come together for him as well. He told me Yeshua had said something similar, telling Pilate that he could have no power over him at all unless it had been given to him by God. That is true, John, isn't it? So we too must trust that even this injustice is part of God's plan. I ended my statement with a question, unsure myself how to reconcile that. As the afternoon shadows lengthened, someone came running to John's house, panting and breathless. When John re-entered, he looked distraught. He knelt beside me, taking my hands in his. As fear tightened its hold on my heart, my hands tightened their grip on his. What is the news, John? He spoke haltingly. Yesterday, those at the temple saw Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the current high priest who had torn his robes and cried for the death of my son. The previous afternoon, after slaying the Passover lamb, he had entered the temple to sprinkle the blood of the sin offering before the veil. That curtain 
that hides the mercy seat, the place of God's holy presence. Those in the temple courtyard said Caiaphas came running out, terror-stricken, his face drained of all color, his eyes wide and wild. The 30-foot-high veil before him had been torn in two from top to bottom by an unseen hand. The Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim, was open for all to see. John and I locked eyes for a long moment, hoping each to read in the others the interpretation. What did it mean? The scent of frankincense that had lingered long in the room that day wafted through my memory. The second gift of the Magi, a gift I had often mulled over, wondering how Yeshua could be king and priest for no one had ever functioned in both roles. Yet he, the high king from heaven, had acted as our high priest, mediating our forgiveness before God with the sacrifice of his own blood, opening the way into the very presence of God for us all. Caiaphas was no longer needed we had a far better high priest. Somehow, we knew Yeshua's story wasn't over yet. For a split second, his puzzling words flashed across my mind. My heart seemed to stop, stand still. Oh, son, remember Yeshua's words. In three days, I will rise again. Oh, John. Could it be? I got up and went over to the narrow mat in the back room. Kneeling down, I began to pray and count off the days. As the light waned with the gathering darkness, I sat trying to think of other scriptures that would give me assurance and confirmation. The following day seemed eerily silent. I tried to convince myself that Sabbaths were always quiet like this, but something was different. A somber pall hung over the city. My own heart clung uncertainly to hope. John urged me to eat, but I could only pray and wait and wonder as another day faded into twilight. The next morning I was awakened by the shaking of the house, an aftershock from the earthquake the day Yeshua had died. I lay frozen on my mat, waiting for the tremors to subside. It was the third day. Shortly after, a bird outside my shuttered window flung its song into the gray light of dawn. A spark of joy almost ignited the smoldering ember of hope in my heart. But immediately the specter of the cross snuffed it out. How can you sing when your maker is dead? Shortly after, some women came over. We started out for the tomb. They with their gathered spices. I with the Magi's gift of myrrh. Along the way, we discussed how we would move the stone from the entrance. Perhaps the soldiers would be willing. We had gotten word that the priests had posted a guard. For they knew of Yeshua's claim that he would rise after three days. Ironically, they had more faith in his words than we did. But as we neared the tomb, we found the massive stone already rolled back. Cautiously, we approached, uncertain what we would discover. We entered the dim confines of the tomb, dreading the task before us, yet drawn by love. 
as our eyes adjusted to the gloom, we suddenly fell back in startled fear. For there before us sat a young man clothed all in white, just to the right of where Yeshua's body ought to have been. I heard again those calming words that had been spoken to me over 30 years before. Do not be afraid. Then, he spoke the most wonderful words that have ever fallen on human ears. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said, go and tell. Our grief gave way to momentary bewilderment before bursting forth into a cascade of insurmountable joy. We ran back to tell the disciples, oh, John, the tomb, he's not there. We saw an angel. He told us Yeshua is alive. He even asked why we would seek the living among the dead. Simon Peter was also there. He looked at John dubiously. I could tell they thought I might have been hallucinating in my grief. Shortly after, Mary of Magdala came running in breathless. I've seen him. I've seen Yeshua. Peter took off running with John close on his heels. They saw the empty tomb. The grave linens were all there, but there was no body. The cloth around his head was separate from the other linens and folded up neatly. When John arrived back home, I could tell by the look in his eyes that he believed. He came over to me, his eyes welling with tears of joy and hope-filled wonder. Oh, mother, it's true, isn't it? If only we could see him. All the disciples, except for Thomas, got together that afternoon. They discussed all the possibilities of what could have happened and then some. Most of them still did not believe and thoroughly discounted Mary Magdalene's story as a woman in shock or wishful thinking. After all, hadn't she herself thought he was the gardener? But then two close friends came hurrying back. They had heard our news from the previous morning. They too had seen him, had walked with him most of the seven miles back home. Yeshua explained the scriptures to them, reminding them of the different prophecies he had fulfilled. Then he had broken bread and handed it to them. He is alive, they assured us. One of the disciples, the pain and disillusionment of the last few days written in his eyes, reasoned somewhat bitterly. Then why hasn't he shown himself to us? If he were alive, wouldn't he do that? Show himself to his own chosen disciples? It was a logical and honest question. Then suddenly, Yeshua appeared before us. Everyone backed away in fear. You could almost feel the air being sucked out of the room. We had been very careful to bolt the door and shutter the windows for fear of being raided. You have to understand how fearful and grieving and broken we all were. The crucifixion had left us all reeling, filled with dread and shame. Yeshua, of course, knew this and sought immediately to alleviate our fears, saying, Peace be to you. We weren't sure if he were a ghost or a spirit or if he were real, you know, like us. But he showed us his scars. Again, he repeated, Peace to you. It took a while for the beating of our hearts to settle back down. Fear mingled with joy and awe, doubt and faith collided. It's very difficult to describe the different clash of emotions we all felt. But one thing we did know, Yeshua is alive. We ate with him, talked with him, our hands touched him. That night, I began to get a glimmer 
of the huge gap in our limited understanding. We looked at him and saw a simple man, a laborer with healing in his hands. They saw him calm the sea and heal a dying man. We saw, but could we really understand? We could not. We could not. Though we tried, we could not. He was just a common laborer, but with healing in his hands. But could we really understand? We could not. We listened to the teaching of his words. We wondered at the mystery that we heard. We wondered what he meant about a father's plan. We heard, but could we really understand? We could not. We could not. of our leaders, regardless of our own doubts or dim understanding. Yeshua lives. He is king forever. The whole world shifted with the resurrection. Yeshua wrestled sin and death and came out victorious. Death cannot hold the Lord of life, the creator of all, the perfect spotless lamb of God. Death cannot claim a righteous one, for death is the result of sin. Yeshua has shattered the bondage to sin. Evil is conquered. The serpent's head has been crushed. Just as God promised the first woman back in the garden. The poisonous sting of sin holds no power over us. Death 
and the shadow of its fearful specter has been defeated. Yeshua lives, and so shall I. That night, Yeshua commissioned us. As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. Then he did something very unusual. He breathed on us, each one in turn. His eyes seemed to have that far away look in them as if he were seeing down the long linear line of history to the time he breathed into Adam, the first man his own hands had fashioned and watched that clay body become animated with his new life. Now, his face illuminated with holy joy, he breathed into us the new creation, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. He imparted his spirit to animate our spirits, which had been dead because of sin, replacing our darkness with his light. Through his death on the cross, Yeshua offers us full and complete forgiveness through the removal of our sins. But that was only the beginning of his great and wondrous gifts. Through his resurrection, Yeshua offers us much more than this. Not only the removal of the fear of death, but the ability to serve God in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives, just as Zacharias had prophesied at the birth of John the baptizer. Through his resurrection, Yeshua offers to us the gift of his very own righteousness, conferring upon us his own perfection. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, Yeshua offers to make a trade with us. Let me show you. I've kept these things over the years as a reminder of what my son has done for us. He offers to take your sin, which he already paid for, and bore for you on the cross and give you his righteousness. This is the magnificent gift he holds out to you and to me. His resurrection proves it and proclaims it. It's called justification. Just as if I'd always done the right thing at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons, just like Yeshua did. This is the gift of the resurrection. Though his resurrection happened in the past, it is not only relevant to our future someday after we die, having very little to do with our lives now, Nothing could be further from the truth. Yeshua's resurrection transformed our whole ways of thinking and reoriented the trajectory of our lives. Having a clean, pure heart rather than a sinful heart changes our whole identity. His resurrection has everything to do with the nitty-gritty dailiness of our lives. The choices we make, the words we use, even the tone in which we say them. His resurrection, because he lives, I can live in newness of life, no longer controlled by the sinful responses that were so natural to me, but instead I can draw on his life, his righteousness within me. He lives. He lives. Because of the cross and the resurrection, 
Yeshua extends to us the twin gifts of forgiveness and his very own righteousness. But Yeshua's story did not end with the resurrection. His greatest gift was yet to come. But we didn't learn that till a few weeks later. So that is a story for another time. Time will not permit me to tell you all the wonders that are in Yeshua. But you can read about it for yourselves. And I pray you will read the writings of my dear John and the other followers of Yeshua who were eyewitnesses to these things and whose own lives were transformed by our resurrected master. Put yourself into the story. Read it over and over to see what we saw, to hear what we heard, to feel what we felt. Let his story abide in you until your life melds into his life. Oh, that you might know him. For to know Yeshua is to have the eternal realm infused into your soul, both now and forever. Until we give him first place, until we let him begin to fill us with his spirit, renew us from within. Nothing matters, nothing's gained without. said to us, peace be to you. From the one who is peace, who brought peace to earth and bore our punishment to give us peace, peace with God and peace with ourselves. Let him breathe on you his new life within and fill you 
with his indwelling Holy Spirit. Then go on to know him better and better, for the knowledge of Yeshua is fathomless, as fathomless as God himself, for he is the eternal God. I guarantee you will never reach the limits of who he is. And when at last you stand before him and see his beautiful face and the scars born for you, you will never, ever be disappointed. Rebecca is going to be out in the entryway afterwards, so if you'd like to just thank her for what she's done this past week, how she has led us to think about the story of Jesus and Easter in a fresh way, uh, she'll be out there and be sure and say thank you. Um, you know, the story of Easter, as, as she has made so beautifully and abundantly clear to us, is not just about celebrating a historical happening. It's all about a personal encounter with Christ. We remember the personal encounter that those people had long ago, but, but Jesus lives. And he's still in the business of personal encounters today. And, and I trust that you've had that encounter with Jesus. But if you haven't, I hope that this will be the Easter that for yourself, you would come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to know you in my life. And whether you're making a decision like that for the first time and you just want someone to talk to, someone to pray with, or maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've come today and there's a burden on your heart and you need someone to pray with on this Easter, when the service is over, we're going to have some people up front here. They'll have some little tags on that say, need prayer. And, uh, and you're welcome to come up and just talk to someone and to pray with them. Because again, Easter isn't about just Easter baskets and bright colored eggs. Easter is about a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And our prayer is that you would encounter him today.